0: We're back. Fifty years after our first episodes, the Society for Popular Astronomy is proud to welcome you to this, your very own astronomical magazine in sound, in which we bring you news, views, and interviews from the exciting world of astronomy. This is the new Sound of Astronomy.
1: That's right, the first three issues of The Sound of Astronomy were produced all the way back in 1967 and long preceded the era of podcasts. The Junior Astronomical Society, now the Society for Popular Astronomy, recorded episodes onto magnetic tape and sent them through the post to listeners. Happily, technology has now caught up with us. So instead of having to mail everything to you on old reel-to-reel tapes, you can now listen to this on all sorts of wonderful devices. Later in this episode, we'll catch up with Paul Sutherland, Robin Skagel and Adrian Egan as they tell us about how The Sound of Astronomy came to be. The first issue of The Sound of Astronomy included good wishes from the legendary Patrick Moore, famous for TV's The Sky at Night this issue, we are delighted to include a message from one of the show's current presenters.
2: I'm Chris Lintop from The Sky at Night, and I'd like to wish The Sound of Astronomy all the best for its relaunch.
1: Hi, I'm a snack cat, and I'd like to welcome you to The Sound of Astronomy.
3: And this is Robin's schedule. Space scientists, professional astronomers, amateur observers and citizen scientists from around the world got together in London in May for a two-day workshop on NASA's Juno mission to Jupiter. The Sound of Astronomy's Paul Sutherland asked one of the organizers, Dr Lee Fletcher of the University of Leicester, what had brought such an eclectic mix of people together.
4: Right now we have a spacecraft called the Juno mission that's currently up in orbit around Jupiter and it's been there ever since the summer of 2016. Now it's a fabulous spacecraft, it's doing some tremendous uh, work up there in orbit around Jupiter, but it does lack certain uh, uh, key things that we need to fully interpret the data that we're getting. And the key one uh, for us is the temporal context, so understanding how Jupiter's atmosphere is evolving over the course of time. Uh, You're probably familiar looking through a telescope with uh, the beautiful banded structure of Jupiter. Well, that that changes on unpredictable timescales. You get large storms erupting. Some of the belts can disappear and come back again. And Juno because it's only orbiting um, once every 53 days and able to take good data once every 53 days, it misses out on a lot of the stuff that's happening in between. So the Juno team uh, decided that the best way to get around this problem would be to engage this fabulous network of amateur observers from across the globe to try and fill in the blanks to try to understand how Jupiter's atmosphere is evolving over those time scales in between the Juno encounters themselves so the first uh, meeting that was set up was actually a couple of years ago now out in in Nice and uh, several professional astronomers met with members of the amateur community to discuss ways in which this collaboration might get started. And that was a fabulous meeting. We all had a tremendous time, made some new friends, and ever since then, the collaboration has been going strong. So myself and uh, Dr. John Rogers, who heads up the British Astronomical Association's Jupiter section, decided that we wanted to do a sequel to this meeting, and this has a slightly different flavor in that it's it's a thank you to all those talented amateurs and citizen scientists who have devoted so much time to this effort so far. And what we wanted to do was bring together members of the Juno team, which are, they're mostly based out in the United States because it's a U.S.-led mission, with those amateur contributors, get them together in the same room to talk about the fabulous science that Juno has done and how the uh, the amateur contribution has, has sort of helped out with that, that effort. So this all happened uh, last week, and we're, we're recovering uh, from that, that big meeting right
5: now. <laughs> right, because it's gonna, I think that would be quite a surprise to a lot of people that, that uh, amateurs can, can get involved when you know, when it's sort of such a high-tech business nowadays and uh, we've, got, we've got space probes visiting the planets. Um, presumably the amateurs still need quite sophisticated equipment to, to help out, do they?
4: Yeah, well we do find that the, the, the amateurs who are contributing have got a, a series of favourable circumstances, shall we say that. They may have uh, great equipment from sort of uh, the 6 inches uh, six inches up to 14 inches is the kind of range of telescopes I've seen talked about. Uh, but also they have favourable conditions with Jupiter high in the sky at the moment, because it's uh, it's rather hard to do from the UK right now at a fairly low elevation. And we're talking about people who don't have too much issue uh, navigating the jet stream, causing all the turbulence in our own atmosphere to do it. And what they can do is they use a technique called lucky imaging, whereby they take video captures of the scene, and then they stack together only the sharpest frames that they capture on a two or three minute uh, video. And what that can do is freeze the atmospheric seeing and deliver uh, images that are such high quality that they're getting down to resolutions uh, below a 1,000 kilometers on the cloud tops of Jupiter. And that, that number, 1,000 kilometers, is crucial because that's getting to the right spatial resolution to be directly comparable with some of the uh, the, the Juno observations. Now, I'm not talking about Juno's images there. Juno's images are from very, very close in and have spectacular resolutions down to just a few kilometers. Right. But the other remote sensing instruments on there work at this thousand kilometer scale where the amateurs really can uh, contribute to what's going on. And of course, filling that time gap, as I mentioned at, uh, at the beginning. Yeah. Now, one of the really exciting things that came out of the meeting uh, that I hadn't realized, but I only uh, understood from talking to members of the Juno team, was that um, not only do you have amateurs observing from here on Earth, but you have some very, very talented people who are doing processing of the JunoCam imaging. Now, just to fill you in, JunoCam is a camera on board Juno that was never designed to do science. It was designed to engage the general public, mm. and it's been doing that tremendously well. But they have relied on this, uh, this, this network of sort of citizen scientists or armchair astronomers processing that data. And what uh, several of them noticed, and these are citizen scientists, remember, not, uh, not people who are working for the team. What several of them noticed was that if they compared overlapping Juno images, they could actually see motion in some of the cyclones and some of the anticyclones and some of the jet streams. And because of this, they actually told the Juno team, hey, do you realize you're seeing atmospheric flow within Jupiter? And it meant that the Juno team went away and they actually redesigned their observation planning so that they could capture more of these time-lapse images of Jupiter on later peritopes. So not only are they delivering um, sort of amateur imaging from the ground, but they're also helping to inform some of the planning for the spacecraft observations itself. So it really, it truly is a collaboration and I was heartened to 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 hear the Juno team members talking about the amateurs and the citizen scientists as being an essential component of the team. Yes,
5: it is quite remarkable, isn't it? Because I suppose there's a combination of the fact that technology has become affordable to amateurs in in the basic CCD cameras being so so good, and also the processing techniques with software that, that anybody can use really. Um, Absolutely. And when you compare. It's showing up really when you compare images that amateur astronomers are taking of planets now compared to what was being achieved by professional observatories just 50 years ago, with with film. Um, sure. There's just a, a, an amazing difference, isn't there? Such detailed pictures from amateurs, incredible.
4: Well, one of the um, one of the recent studies that I was working on was looking at the belts and zones of Jupiter and how they evolved with time, and I had to put together a figure where I went through and painstakingly showed some of. What I consider to be the best amateur observations from the year 2000 through to the present day in 2018. And even in that uh, 18-year period, which for most of us feels like it's gone in a blur, even in that time you can see the evolution and improvement of the quality of the imaging that has taken place. And it's been allowed really by the, the the advent of very fast cameras with very high sensitivity that are able to do this lucky imaging technique that I was talking about combined with software that has been developed specifically for that purpose, for both capturing the movies and for processing and stacking uh, the best images. So those two things, the the hardware side with the cameras and the software side uh, with the stacking, have come together today to create images that are, are spectacular and I'm really excited to see where that community goes next, just just through passion and exploration of the different tools that are available to them,
5: yes, and it was a truly international workshop wasn't it? I noticed that you had like for example, amateur astronomers came from as far as the Philippines and Australia um, absolutely, and they were with space scientists from the states and That's
4: right. So we had um, the the workshop itself was funded by an organization called Europlanet. So they gave us a bit of cash to be able to, uh, to pay the airfares and accommodation for the amateurs who were coming. And so we had amateurs literally from all over the globe, the Philippines, Australia, South Africa, all across Europe, places in South America, and of course, the Juno team themselves from over in the United States. And that was combined with uh, lots of interested interested scientists from here in the u k as well who heard that the meeting was taking place and came down to London to share their ideas and to and to learn from the amateurs and the Juno team about what uh, what this collaboration was like
5: Yes, well, it all sounds like it was very successful um, presumably you'll be planning more events like this if it was uh, if it worked so well.
4: Well, we we certainly hope so, and um, one of the exciting things is it's not limited to Jupiter, okay? The amateurs who are out there, of course, they love looking at a huge variety of Mm. objects, and uh, for planetary observers, we're consistently and constantly trying to track how the atmospheres of those worlds are changing, and they're pushing the boundaries ever further, in fact, over the last sort of three or four years, it's now becoming commonplace for the best amateur observers to be able to track storm features on places like Neptune and even Uranus under some circumstances. And so as we are developing uh, future observations from professional observatories and also future missions to these destinations, those amateur contributions that we've fostered during the Juno mission will become ever more important as we send uh, future spacecraft out to these destinations. So yeah, it's an exciting time and I'm, I'm glad that the workshop was so well received as it's got everybody really fired up and in the, days, in the days since the workshop we're seeing a flood of new data coming in from these amateurs as they get home and they're inspired to carry on taking data.
5: Well it's nice to know that uh, there's still a role for amateurs in astronomy. It wasn't that long ago that we thought that uh but there would no longer be anything for us to do because of the you know <laughs> the advances in professional astronomy and space science but this is this is quite uh, inspiring so thank, thank you very that. much yes thank you Lee for talking to us all about it and uh, good luck for the future
4: you're very welcome thank you
1: Dr Lee Fletcher there talking to the sound of astronomy about how you don't have to be a professional astronomer to make a difference and do great science So, keep looking up at the skies, whether you're just doing it for fun, or whether you're really passionate about citizen science. But what about those of us who live in the city, or the suburbs? Usually, the first piece of advice any amateur astronomer gets is to go somewhere dark, and preferably remote. In our light-polluted times, it can be really, really discouraging to look up at the skies and see nothing but streetlights and the moon but it's by no means impossible to see stars in the city. Here is Robin's Schedule with some tips.
3: City streets like these aren't really the best place for astronomy, let's face it. But actually, if you do live in the city, and this means a lot of the time suburbs as well, because let's face it, most of us have to put up with rather badly light polluted skies. And there's still a lot you can do, even if your skies aren't all that good. Uh, Here are some tips uh, whether or not you do have a telescope and you can do a lot of astronomy with the naked eye but binoculars are helpful and even the telescope, even from the city. First tip really is to get away from the bright lights. This may seem obvious but really if you've got a lot of lights shining on your eyes you'll never get properly dark adapted and you won't see the sky properly. Just shielding your eyes from them will help but really you need to try and get to a place where there are no bright lights to shine in your eyes and immediately around you a local park is obviously a good place and maybe some of these are closed maybe it's not the sort of place you would want to frequent but if you've got a a garden, a suburban garden find a place where there are no bright lights and if there are neighbours' lights shining on you or something like that just try and get into the shadow of a, a tree or something like that just to get away from them Another tip which someone once gave me is the local graveyard can often be a good place to be. Uh, they're rarely flooded and most people don't go there so that's another possibility. Although to be on the safe side just stay in the shadows. Even if you're in the city you do need to get dark adapted. Just walking outside your kitchen door and looking up at the sky and saying oh it looks... I can't see any stars or something like that. Not really the best way to do it. You've still got to get dark adapted. And okay in the city, it may not take quite as long as out in the country where the skies are very much darker, but just give it 10 minutes or so. Don't expect to see something straight away and you'll see quite a lot more. So that's the first couple of tips. But the real important thing is for the darkest skies, even in the city, wait for those really clear nights. These are actually often the coldest of nights because wind coming from the north actually often brings cold polar air which is usually very dry. The amount of water vapor in the atmosphere is what causes the haziness and if you can find the sky without water vapor in it then the sky is often a a lot clearer than if the wind is from the west, in the UK anyway, where it brings Atlantic weather and a lot of water vapor in the atmosphere. So. Look at the weather forecast and look for a northerly wind, that's often a good sign. If you've got high pressure to the west of us, that often brings northerly winds, or low pressure to the east of us, then that can do the same. Although with low pressure you often get showers as well, and a cold front going through with clear skies behind it can be very good one way to find really clear skies is to look during the day for uh, contrails up in the sky, uh, aircraft contrails and if these are very long then you can guarantee there's a lot of water vapor in the atmosphere but if they're very short then that's an indication that the upper atmosphere has got very little water vapor in it and that can be very good for your observing. So wait for the clearest skies. Another way to get really clear skies and this is of course essentially if you want to observe those deep sky objects, like the, the nebulae and galaxies and so on, is to wait until the object you're interested in is at its highest altitude in the sky. This may seem obvious, but things do rise and set, and if you wait until the object is actually at its highest, which in most cases means when it's due south, then that's the, the best time to observe it. So, what do you observe with? Well, binoculars can be help you even if you're trying to find the constellations and i know that in the middle of the city uh, the, the constellations themselves can be t- quite difficult to find some constellations such as as cancer for example and aquarius and so on are um, almost invisible from the from the city you might see just the brightest star in them but Binoculars, particularly small binoculars, the sort that give a very wide field of view, can be quite helpful because they will show you fainter stars than you can see with the naked eye. And even if you can't see those elusive deep sky objects, you'll still be able to view the brighter stars in the constellations much more easily with small binoculars, which gives you a lot of the sky at one time. Quite often people who aren't used to binoculars will find that they they can see stars through them but they're not sure which stars they're looking at. So there's a certain amount of practice involved to identify the actual stars you're looking at and make sure that you, you know exactly what you're seeing and you'll also be able to view, even with small binoculars, some of the brighter deep sky objects, the, the Pleiades, for example, the Seven Sisters Star Cluster in Taurus in winter, and the Orion Nebula also in, in winter months, at winter and spring. These are the things to look at, the showpieces of the sky. Don't expect them to be absolutely brilliant, unless they look in the books, but uh, particularly the Orion Nebula just always appears as a, a grey, misty patch, and not even the largest telescope will show it in those brilliant colours that you see in the photographs but uh, nevertheless seeing it for yourself is the crucial thing. And the, if In the autumn the Andromeda Galaxy M31 and in the summer the Lagoon Nebula and other nebulae in the Milky Way can be visible from city skies. You'd be surprised how easy they can be to find under the right conditions as I've described. And you might see a few of the fainter galaxies such as M81 and M82. These can rise very high overhead in the spring and are well worth looking for even with small binoculars. Now I say use low-power binoculars, magnification of 7 or 8 or something like that, because these give a wide field of view. But if you're looking for individual objects such as these galaxies, then you would need higher magnifications, and this is where the sort of astronomers' binoculars, like 15 by 70s would come in more useful. Star clusters are always easier to see than nebulae, and there's a practical reason for this, and that is because as you increase magnification, The background gets darker, but the points of light, which are stars, don't. So magnifying a bit can help you view star clusters. And a telescope with a magnification of between 40 and 60, say, will help you to see star clusters much more than uh, low-power binoculars. So if you've got a telescope around, don't give up on the sky just because you can't see something with your binoculars or it's very faint. Look with a telescope as well, if you've got one. And of course from the city, solar system objects are bright enough that light pollution makes no difference and a lot of planetary astronomers observe from the city all the time. So this includes the sun, moon and planets and of course many asteroids as well. The moon can take your breath away because it's such an amazing sight with its craters and so on and more or less uh, the same from the city as from out in the country. And of course the sun is just as easily viewed from the city as from the countryside. Some people believe that the seeing in the city isn't as good as in the country. Now, here I've got to distinguish between astronomical seeing and the transparency. And People often mix the two up. They look out and see a clear sky and say, Oh, seeing's good tonight. No, that's not the case because you can't tell what the seeing is like until you actually look through a telescope and and then you can see if the image is steady. Seeing is to do with steadiness of the atmosphere and this is the quality of the image rather than the transparency, which is the clarity of the sky. But people say that they think that they can't observe planets from the city, but there are country astronomers who disagree, because they find equally that the astronomical seeing can be bad from the country, just as it can be from the city. There are several causes of bad seeing. One is the upper atmosphere, and of course, if that's turbulent, and this tends to be when the jet stream is over, so look at a weather map and see where the jet stream is, Um, and that that affects everybody in the city or the country equally. And if the image is rippling like that then, uh, due to high atmosphere seeing, then nothing you can do, but maybe you can turn to the deep sky objects instead. Then there's mid-level seeing, which is caused by fairly local objects such as uh, Uh, such as chimneys and rooftops and so on that are warm and disturbing the air over them it makes sense to find out where your neighbour's boiler vents for example because they will produce a stream of hot air even in the middle of summer because they will use their boilers for producing hot water and you may find that you're looking at something and suddenly it all just disappears and into a, a a sort of writhing mass and that's because the boiler has just started up and is injecting a stream of hot air just where you're looking So find out where the sources of heat are and try and avoid them. But in the city you can equally find good sight lines which have got no problems at all, particularly if you're looking high up. So you you may not be as badly off as you might think. And a misty night is as good in the town as in the country because uh, both suffer equally from the mistiness, but it can steady the atmosphere, and this is because the water vapour tends to even out the temperature differences. And although water vapour is terrible for 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 viewing deep sky objects. It's very good for planetary work, because it steadies the atmosphere. But whatever you do from a city, don't give up. And remember that in recent years a supernova in another galaxy, M82, was discovered from Mill Hill, right by the busy A41 trunk road. Using the sort of telescope that many amateurs have, uh, slightly bigger than most amateurs do have, but nevertheless well within reach, a 14-inch Celestron telescope, and the supernova was discovered right from the middle of the suburbs in really very badly light-polluted area. Well, city astronomers may not have it as easy as those with dark skies, but they can make the most of what they've got. So get out there and get looking.
1: Back to Robin, Paul and Adrian as they discuss the making of the first episodes of The Sound of Astronomy, then known as an audio magazine. Recording an audio magazine was a task far more arduous than putting together a podcast today. Over to them to explain why.
5: Well, thanks to the miracle of Skype, I'm here now talking to two people who played a big part in the first episodes of The Sound of Astronomy, uh, more than 50 years ago now. Adrian Egan, over in Canada, and Robin Skadgel, who's now currently the president of the Society for Popular Astronomy, over here in the UK. So hi to both of you. Hello. Hello, Robin.
0: Hello, Paul. Very nice talking to
5: you. It's good that you could join us. And uh, I'm thinking back to how I had just joined this society, which was then known as the Junior Astronomical Society, of course. And I joined in 1967. And one of the first things I did was send off for this thing called the Sound of Astronomy, which was described as the JAS on tape. And I thought, oh, this sounds great. And I got this Uh, reel-to-reel tape sent through the post, magnetic tape um, and I had strict instructions that it had to be returned in about three days or something and I remember playing it on my dad's old reel-to-reel recorder and I was absolutely amazed and it's fantastic now to think that this was like a forerunner to today's podcast but sort of so many years ahead of its time and I wanted to ask both of you what it was like actually to be there involved in creating it and how it came about it was a very important time in
3: astronomy really because the space program was getting underway in 1966 67 nobody had had walked onto the moon or been around the moon by that time and there were space missions happening more or less every few days so it seemed and missions to the moon the ranger and ranger took place in 64 and surveyor around this time 66 67 sending back the most amazing pictures for then, of the of the surface of the moon. And
0: it was an exciting time, wasn't it, Adrian? Absolutely an exciting time. And we tried to capture that excitement on the Sound of Astronomy. I remember that I sort of based the original idea on a, a South African radio magazine program called Midday Mirror, which was um, a typical radio magazine program uh, consisting of all sorts of different items. And I I, I sort of modeled the the Sound of Astronomy on that. In fact, I remember wanting to call the original Sound of Astronomy Midnight Mirror after Midday Mirror on South African radio. I'm glad it was changed to the Sound of Astronomy, which was a far, far better title. And we, we, we did it as a sort of a magazine show, didn't we, Robin? We sort of covered a range, a multifarious range of subjects.
3: Yes, we had had readers' letters, which I think we probably made up, or uh, we got someone to write them for us. Certainly for issue one, it's very difficult readers to get readers' letters.
5: I think there might have been a
0: couple of uh, genuine ones in there. I'm sure there must have been some genuine ones. We, we always kept an eye on what the, the, the topical um, subject of the day happened to be in astronomy, you know, whether there'd been some breakthrough discovery or um, some member of the um, society had something important to uh, report or discuss. So it was a really interesting and, uh, I think, informative little show, don't you think, Robin?
3: Indeed. And it was, mustn't forget that it was, although it seems old hat technology now, it was groundbreaking at the time because it was very difficult before around that time to do recordings of people unless you had a big reel-to-reel tape recorder to take around. And it was possible by then to get smaller reel-to-reel tape recorders. And also the big innovation was the Philips cassette recorder. And one of those you could carry around with you and record. They were intended really originally for dictation purposes.
0: I remember also um, in one of the um, episodes describing the um, constellations of the Southern Hemisphere from the top of my building in Johannesburg in South Africa and I was uh, describing for Northern listeners particularly the the Southern constellations. So I must have had one of those small recorders with me.
3: It was also very difficult to edit things in those days as well. Uh, Fortunately, we had the services of a chap called Jeff Lindop, who worked in a small television studio, and he was able to do the editing for us. But really, there were only two ways of editing. You either copied from one tape to another and pressed the start button and the stop button at the right right time, or else you got this long length of quarter-inch tape. And if you wanted to cut out an um or an er or... um, a, a false start to a sentence. You actually had to cut the tape with the razor blade at the right point and then cut it back in again. That was very
0: difficult. Yeah, you literally sliced it and taped it together.
5: That's right. Well, yeah, so one of the remarkable things um, I i think, looking back at these first episodes, is that it was a very professional production because we had Adrian, you were um a professional voice artist who has gone on to do great things like that. And then you mentioned Jeff Lindop, who worked in a. a in production in a TV studio so it really was quite remarkable and the sort of standard the quality was very high for for something like that wasn't it
0: yes I think you're right thank you for the uh, the
5: compliment it might be a, a useful point to remind or to tell our listeners that those first three episodes in the 60s that they can hear them today because Robin did actually digitise them and put them online and they can be found at soundcloud.com slash popastro well it's been great talking to you both Adrian and Robin Thank you very much for your reminiscences about how it all started.
1: In April, the Sound of Astronomy went to the European Week of Astronomy and Space Sciences, or EOAS for short. Over a thousand people came together to talk about all things space, from probing the early universe to how we can get everyone to love looking up at the stars, and everything in between. One of the things that came up quite frequently was how we can link space science to art. Astronomers, artists and musicians converged to talk about how we can make space look, sound and feel beautiful. While at EWAS, I interviewed an astronomer who doesn't just look at the universe, he wants to hear it too. Andy Newsom is making universes out of sound and I spoke to him to find out why as we all know astronomy is usually considered to be a very visual science and it's something that is quite difficult to translate so for this revival episode of the sound of astronomy I'm here to talk to a man who wants to recreate the universe with sound. I am here today at EWAS 2018 with Andy Newsom, who is the director of the National Schools Observatory. So can you tell the sound of astronomy a little bit about yourself and your day job?
2: Yeah, um, I, as I say, run the National Schools Observatory. So that's a project where we've got a big telescope in the Canary Islands and schools all over the country get to play with it on their own. But I also do research and teaching and everything else when I can fit it in.
1: You have been speaking today about Sonibus. Can you say a little bit about
2: that? Yeah, this is something that came about for a very old friend of mine called Gavin Starks. We've been talking for a number of years about whether we could take a universe and replace light with sound. Um, and not just sort of do this at random, but try and build up a detailed physical model where we have sound repl- what we call sonons, little particles of sound, replacing photons in a self-consistent way, and then maybe create entire universes, model universes, and listen to them rather than look at them.
1: So how come you chose uh, sound rather than, say, um, a universe of taste or a universe of touch?
2: It's partly because there is, uh, there's a relationship between light and sound that you can play with. They're both waves, they both have frequencies and so on. It's, but it's mainly because Gavin is a composer, and therefore music and sound make the most sense.
1: At the moment, our model of the universe is built on photons, information from light, from electromagnetic radiation. That isn't completely consistent either, as we all know, so um, how do you think your Sonon project is going to fare?
2: What we're trying to do is, it, it, it sort of has two sides to this. On the one side, we want to create the universe that we can listen to, but while we're doing that, we're having to think really hard about what light is and what sound is, and how they're similar and how they're different. And of course that makes you think much more deeply about what light is, how it's produced, how it travels through the universe, how the changes in the universe affect the light, because we need to do the same thing for the sound. So for me, it's also partly making me think properly about what's happening to light in the universe as well.
1: So, um, as you will know, we've now entered the era of multi-messenger astronomy where we can use the sound from the gravitational waves as well as light from other parts of the universe to build up a multi-dimensional picture of what's going on in our reality. How um, has this influenced the soniverse, if at all?
2: Um, I don't think it's influenced it directly, but I think it's probably given us a a bit of a kick. We've been thinking about the soniverse for about 30 years, Um, And it's only really in the last two or three years that we've actually started to really do something about it. And I think that was at least partly influenced by the gravitational waves. Gavin and I met when we were both at Glasgow University, which is heavily involved in the gravitational wave detection. So that also probably started some of our thinking about this as well.
1: Well, yeah, it must have done. So you say that um, you've sort of been bouncing ideas on and off each other for um, 30 years. What are some of the main challenges uh, you've come across?
2: I think the biggest single challenge is... Um, it, first sight, this looks simple. You've got sound waves, you've got waves of light. But it's the differences which make it much more challenging. So with sound, the concepts of duration and amplitude are much more significant than they are with light. Um, you can't have a, a, a sort of less than one full wave and be able to hear the sound, so that's our minimum piece. But the length of that also depends on time, so time becomes much more complicated. So what we thought might be a direct mapping turns out to be a much more complicated understanding of an underlying physics which doesn't exist, and that's the challenge. Yeah,
1: I suppose it must be conceptually um, quite difficult, but did you get um, any benefits out of this project that you maybe weren't expecting? um... I,
2: I certainly have a much better understanding of how our understanding of universes affect light, because I've been thinking about it a lot. more. I've always sort of done that, but I've taken a lot of things for granted. Um, So actually thinking back and thinking, you know, how does a star really produce light? Calling it black body radiation isn't enough, you've got to understand the details. That sort of thing is, it's sort of made me take a step back and look at the things that I've always taken for granted. And they are in fact correct, but thinking about them in more detail has been very useful.
1: Yeah, thinking about it as a sort of analogue, I suppose. So, in astronomy, there's a technique called sonification, which is where um, you look at the light information and then you turn um, that into sound. Now, sonification sometimes produces quite pleasing results to the ear, but then other times it just doesn't. It produces a screech. Um, have you thought about the aesthetics of the soniverse at all?
2: We will be thinking about the aesthetics, but that comes later. I think yeah. the important thing, in a sense, what we Doing at the moment is we're designing an instrument and instruments can sound dreadful or they can sound great depending on how well you play them once we've created the instrument we then have to learn how to play it i, I think one thing to bear in mind about this is there's a lot of physics behind this there's a lot of thinking there's a lot of bouncing ideas back and forth but the main reason we're doing it is because it's going to be great fun and that's the most important
5: bit
1: to give you a taste of what the soniverse sounds like here's a snippet from gavin stark's ds squared series one inspired by a double pulsar which you can hear in full at www.binarydust.org The Sound of Astronomy is brought to you by the Society for Popular Astronomy. Our aim is to bring astronomy to all. To find out how you can get involved and learn more about the skies, head over to www.popastro.com.
3: The New Horizons spacecraft to Pluto was one of the most spectacular and daring missions of the past few years. The man in charge was Dr. Alan Stern, and our intrepid reporter Paul Sutherland spoke to Alan about New Horizons and his new book called Chasing New Horizons. He began by asking what Alan felt were the highlights of the mission.
6: Well, I'll, I'll tell you first, the, probably the biggest highlight was seeing my team, a big team of men and women who worked so long to pull this off, uh, to build a spacecraft in record time. and for record low cost for outer planet exploration and then get it launched and flown all the way across the solar system uh, to the farthest worlds ever explored. And then Pluto just turned out to be scientifically spectacular. Probably those two things uh, were the main highlight for me.
5: And were you surprised by how, uh, I mean, the Earth-like features weren't there and people are talking about an underground ocean?
6: Yeah, absolutely. Uh, in our book Chasing New Horizons we describe all of that, the underground ocean, the mountain ranges, the glaciers, uh the heavily cratered ter- terrain, the avalanches, the uh, very lightly cratered young terrains, just the mind-blowing uh scientific variety on Pluto's surface.
5: These discoveries are going to keep research scientists busy for years, aren't they?
6: Well, they are. Uh we collected uh Something like four hundred and sixty different data sets From cameras and spectrometers and other instruments aboard New Horizons, and we studied Pluto and all five of its moons And there's just a, a huge amount to do now with all that data. We've been working on it uh, ever since the final bits of the data got to the ground about a year and a half ago, and I've published uh, many dozens of scientific papers, but I think we've only scratched the surface
5: and pluto's largest moon charon that turns out to be, look as interesting as pluto really doesn't it it's almost like a, a twin world
6: well you know they're very different places but they're equally interesting uh you know sharon is so large that uh it it's the eighth largest object in the kuiper belt and really a planet in its own right uh, but its geologic engine ran out long ago and it's never had a substantial atmosphere and it looks much more like an icy Saturnian or Uranian satellite. Whereas Pluto is just something completely different than we've ever encountered before. Uh, very colorful, uh, uh, very sharp gradients from place to place in terms of the surface composition, complicated climate and weather, uh, as you say, an internal ocean, and uh, fascinating geology.
5: Now you mentioned that uh, this is part of the Kuiper belt, and. Uh... Pluto is like the major body in this uh, realm of icy objects. And the mission's not over, is it? Because your spacecraft is now heading for a new target, which is one of these uh, icy bodies, I think nicknamed Ultima Thule. Have I said it correctly?
6: <laughs> <laughs> it's Ultima Thule, which is a Norse saying for beyond the farthest frontier. You know, uh, Pluto is uh, uh, the largest planet in the Kuiper Belt, really the king of the Kuiper Belt, the first discovered of these uh, a population of small planets that are out there. Ultima Thule, by contrast, you know, Pluto is about the surface area of uh, the continental United States. It's vast. Ultima Thule is a building block of these small planets. And it's, you know, it's barely the size of London. Uh, it's completely different, but it's ancient and uh, much farther out. And we'll be exploring it on New Year's Eve and New Year's Day uh, just in about six or seven months' time.
5: And I noticed that when you mentioned Pluto then, you you, you called it a planet. Um, New Horizons was only six months into its nine-year journey, wasn't it, when Pluto got demoted to the status of dwarf planet by a cool. gathering of the International Astronomical Union. Um, now, you believe that was wrong, don't you?
6: Well, it's a completely illegitimate demotion by uh, non-experts in the field, by astronomers rather than planetary scientists. And really, I think the astronomers should stick to black holes and galaxies. <laughs> they wouldn't want us trying to classify those because we're not experts. And in planetary science, we consider, uh, we broadly consider Pluto and the small planets of the Kuiper belt to be full-fledged planets. And uh, uh, we just kind of ignore uh, what the astronomers do. It's, it's too bad that so much of the, uh, the press uh, gobble that down without any uh, uh, real critical thinking.
5: So how many planets would you think are in the solar system?
6: Well, we, know, we now know of about 29, but we estimate that there are probably several hundred. So, you know, the solar system was much better at making planets than uh, anyone ever thought. And uh, just like uh, the fact that there are countless stars, countless galaxies, and uh, for that matter, countless mountains and rivers on the Earth, uh, we're not afraid of uh, long lists of names. Uh, if astronomers are, well, that's their problem. <laughs>
5: <laughs> right. Now, would you like to see a new mission go go to Pluto and spend longer there? I know it's, it's difficult because you have to get out there quickly and then to go into orbit would be quite difficult, but would you like to see another mission?
6: I very much would, and there's a growing momentum for that in the United States to send an orbiter spacecraft, hmm. and we think we know how to do that with electric propulsion so that we get into orbit after a seven- to nine-year journey and then spend years and years studying Pluto and its system of satellites.
5: Now, you are co-author of a new book about the mission called Chasing New Horizons. Can you tell us a bit more about it, what it was like to write?
6: Absolutely, yeah. Uh, Chasing New Horizons is uh, uh, coming out on May 1st, and uh, it's written by David Grinspoon, an astrobiologist and planetary scientist and accomplished author, and myself. Um, It was really a teamwork uh, project in which... uh, I as the mission leader and many of the mission's participants, from uh, Alice Bowman, who runs mission operations, to Glenn Fountain, who has been the project manager for uh, New Horizons, to many of the scientists on the science team, former NASA administrators, and others uh, uh, were interviewed for the book, and it tells the entire 26-year story, from idea Mm -hmm. through years of battling to get a mission to Pluto, to how you build a spacecraft and launch it and fly it and uh, how you plan a flyby and then what actually happened at the flyby and what we learned from it. It's the whole story, soup to nuts.
5: Well, that sounds absolutely fantastic. I, I can't wait to read it. Um, and I wish you all the best with the book. And thank you very much, Alan, for talking to us about the mission.
6: Well, thank you very much for having, having me on and uh, look forward to uh, what you think of the book. It's getting great reviews.
5: Great. Thank you.
1: Before we go, we've got one more shout-out from Rosetta Project Scientist Matt Taylor.
2: Hi, this is Matt Taylor, European Space Agency Project Scientist of the Rosetta mission. It's great to have The Sound of Astronomy back. Welcome and go forth and prosper.
1: Sadly, that's all we have time for today. Thank you for listening. If you enjoyed this episode, tell your friends. Don't forget to follow us over at www.soundcloud.com slash popastro for more This has been The Sound of Astronomy with Osnat Katz, Paul Sutherland and Robin Scadgel, with our guests Chris Lintott, Alan Stern, Adrian Egan, Andy Newsom, and Matt Taylor with music by Carolus Rex.